Recording in 1G with Libby Jones, Ian MacDonald, Mark Perver and Christina Smith. The Jobcast, May 2013 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Christina and joining me in the studio today is Mark. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, we talk to Brother Guy Consolmagno about meteorites and Dr Ian MacDonald answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all of that, Mark interviews Dr Joe Zuntz about the Dark Energy Survey for this month's Job Bite. For this month's Job Bite, I'm speaking to a new postdoctoral researcher here at the Georgia Bank Centre for Astrophysics, Dr Joe Zuntz. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. And uh, you've recently moved from University College London, is that right? I have. I was in UCL for a couple of years and then Oxford and then London. So I've been I've been bouncing around for a while now. Yes. Been all over the place. So what is it uh, that's led you to go to those different places? Sure. So um, I've been trying to get sort of experience with different kinds of astronomy. So I'm trying to, as well as bouncing around by place, bounce around by wavelength as well. So I'm okay. spending a bit of time doing uh, microwave data and now I've sort of moved into the optical world of uh, survey astronomy. And are you then tying all those together? That's the idea, yes. Yeah. So, um, so I'm a cosmologist um, and a big part of my job is sort of collecting different kinds of astronomical data and putting them into one framework and trying to, trying to get constraints or trying to get uh, information on different things about the cosmos and the whole universe and pull those things together from different kinds of data and see if you can combine them in a way that's both sort of logical and makes sense but also sort of accounts for all the problems that we see in different kinds of data because every kind of astronomy has its own bugs, its own problems, its own features and um, sort of accounting for all those things in a way that's sort of consistent with everything is a big part of the challenge of what I do. Yeah. So you're sort of finding the same information from different sources? And... Exactly, yeah. So there's a few kind of really big questions that we're after in um, in cosmology right now, um, mainly to do with the word dark. So we're interested in dark energy and dark matter. So we're asking ourselves, or we're asking, we're asking the question, what is the behaviour of dark energy and that kind of question. And there are all kinds of different handles on that from different kinds of data. So we can look at things a very, very great distance away to try and get a handle on the early universe and understand that. Then we can look at things in the, in the later universe and try and try and match those things together. So it's a question of finding a theory that matches up predictions on both the early universe and the late universe and, and the universe in different wavelengths and trying to put those things together. Okay, so when you were doing the microwave studies, did that involve the cosmic microwave background? Because obviously here we've had a, quite a big stir all about Planck and the recent measurements of the cosmic microwave background. Exactly, yeah. So, so I worked on a couple of different microwave experiments, but more importantly using microwave data from all different experiments and trying to understand it. So this, this, the microwave background, the, the cosmic microwave background or CMB, um, is this this early universe phenomenon? You, we see the earliest light in the universe, and it's a fantastic snapshot of what the universe was like just very shortly after it, it began. So it's a great handle on everything else. So the late universe is a very confusing place. The late universe is full of you know exploding stars and um, <laughs> colliding galaxies, and they're very hard to understand. Um, the early universe is hard to measure, but it's very easy to understand. It's, it's what we call linear. There was very little structure in the early universe. It was very simple and very plain. And all the, the things that would later become clusters of galaxies and enormous superstructures at that time were just tiny little ripples in a very f- sort of flat background. So it's a fantastic handle, that kind of data, on, on the early universe. And we then have to try and figure out what happened be- between then and now right. um, is, is, the, is the big um, the question we're trying to do. Wow, that's a, yeah, I'd never thought of looking at it that way before, but the, 
the early universe being being a slightly simpler place. It is, yeah. I mean, it's it's very hard to measure. Don't get me wrong; it's horrendously hard to actually measure with telescopes. It's an enormous challenge that people like working on Planck have, have spent decades doing. So it's a huge technical challenge to do. But the actual physics of the early universe is much simpler than the physics of the late universe, just because yeah, there's none of this stuff we call gastrophysics, so the physics, gas physics um, of you know complicated things interacting doesn't really happen so much in the early universe. So everything's everything's uh, a simple mathematical expansion around a sort of plain background. So, and your current work, what sort of thing does that involve? Are you looking at the um, the complicated later universe as well? Now? I am, yeah. So I've, I've I've moved moved forward in time through my through my career, and I'm I'm now working on um, a, a survey called the Dark Energy Survey, or DES or DES, which is looking at the the late universe. So we are making the biggest map that's ever been made of anything ever. Wow. It's our, it's our goal <laughs> for the next five years. Um, now, that's obviously a challenge. Um, and one of the things you can do when you do these sort of grand scale surveys is uh, look at the universe in lots of different ways. So most of what we're looking at is galaxies. So the thing you see most of when you look out into the deep universe is loads and loads of galaxies. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have a fantastically uh, high precision, high resolution telescope, like the Hubble Space Telescope, you see these beautiful spiral arms and these beautiful structures and these, these lovely things that we see when we think of pictures of galaxies. If you're trying to make a really large map, like we are doing with, with DES, you can't pick out individual galaxies to that level of precision anymore. So instead, you're getting very blurry pictures of hundreds of millions of galaxies rather wow. than one beautiful picture of one. Um, so that, that's the idea. So we're using these kind of pictures. Um, we're going to cover about an eighth of the entire sky over the next five years. Um, and we're going to see a few hundreds of millions of galaxies, if the numbers we're expecting. And... We're going to do a bunch of different things with those galaxies to try and map out the evolution of the universe over the last five or ten billion years. Wow. So there's a, a survey that I really liked called the, the Two Degree Field Survey, or the 2DF, which I remember was, was mapping galaxies, and they sort of gathered in these kind of filaments. And that was obviously mapping what you could see, which is only this small, I don't know, 5% or something mm-hmm. of our universe. And then I can imagine a dark matter survey perhaps trying to trace that out how on earth do you trace the dark energy? I mean, how do you map that? Sure. So um, we don't. We never measure dark energy directly. Um, so it's not. Uh, it's, it may not even be a thing, as far as we know. We don't know if it's a thing that you can map or if it's just the same everywhere. And that's the big question we're asking. Actually, right, is okay. does dark energy cluster or right. does it? Is it uniform everywhere? So it may not even be possible to make a map of dark energy. So instead, what we're doing is looking at the effects of dark energy on matter on structure. So we're looking for uh, its effects on the growth of clusters of galaxies and the growth of, of, of how galaxies cluster together. We're doing that in kind of two main ways. So you can you can look at things like the two degree field that you mentioned. The, the mainstream of surveys that have been done so far work on looking at the positions of galaxies. So you pick out you make a map of little dots of light where all the galaxies are across the cosmos. You measure their distance. You measure the distance to them. You measure their kind of position in, in angle as well. So mm-hmm. you do that very carefully. And that way you get a map of the position of galaxies. But that's not really, like you say, most of what the universe is. So um, most, of our, most of the matter in the universe is dark. It's, it doesn't fall into galaxies. It doesn't cluster like that. Um, we know it's there for various reasons that I won't go into, but we know, we're pretty sure it's there, but we would like to map it. So what we have so far is a bit like if you have a map of Britain, but all you have on your map is a position of all the post offices. Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting map, and it's really useful. It's just a bunch of points of dots. But it doesn't really tell you the underlying geography of what you're looking at. It gives you clues, but it's not the same thing. Mm. So the way we're kind of moving forward now um, in astronomy is something called lensing. So lensing is a very 
well-known historic phenomenon. Uh, basically, the same way that glass bends light when you look through a magnifying glass or a telescope, um, gravity bends light in the same way. So when light goes round uh, a big thing like the sun or like a galaxy or like a cluster of galaxies or like some dark matter, um, it bends and it, its path changes just the same way as a moving object kind of curves around a, a gravitational force as well. So we can use that effect, we can measure that effect on hundreds of millions of galaxies by looking at the shapes of these little galaxies and how it's been twisted and warped by the intervening gravitational force between us and it. Mm-hmm. Um, so by doing that, we can look at how this uh, effect changes across space. So we can make a gravity map of the universe. I see. So the only thing that dark matter does, it doesn't produce light because it's dark. We can't sort of touch it or interact with it in that way, but we can detect its gravity. And that's sort of how we first came to realise it was there, and that's how we're going to map it um, in this gigantic scale as well. But, and would the dark energy have a gravitational influence as well? Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, grav- dark energy mainly has a gravitational effect on very, very large scales. So we look at um, the the wider universe and the acceleration of the universe is what we call dark energy. So it would certainly have that kind of gross scale effect. We don't know if dark energy clusters or not, like I said. So we don't know if it's going to have a have a local variation but if it does then that should have a gravitational force as well the main thing we're looking at is the gravity from dark matter but if there is a gravitational force from dark energy as well varying gravitational force from dark energy as well and we can start to look at that too and how would you separate the dark energy from the dark matter or or when you say the dark energy survey is that taking dark energy to be both dark energy and no it's it's really it is about dark energy but the so the 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 name is slightly misleading it's it's not the only thing we're looking at certainly um but no the the so the idea is that um once we've looked at how dark matter changes with time changes with history history of the universe um so we know that the universe is clustering so uh, basically if you have two blobs of matter gradually with time gravity will just pull them together yeah just just like you'd expect with any any ordinary matter as well so if you imagine uh, two lumps of matter, over time gravity will pull those lumps of matter together, whether they're ordinary matter like the Earth and the Moon or whether they're uh, dark matter. So if you imagine a whole field of these of, of matter across the whole universe, um, that's all clustering into clumps. So matter starts off kind of spread out and it gradually pulls together under gravity. And we're interested in how fast that stuff pulls together. And we're interested in how the clustering like that changes with size. So how often do you get big lumps of matter forming? How often do you get small lumps of matter forming? And it turns out that that depends on dark energy. So that, that's an effect that's happening to dark matter, but it depends on dark energy. So basically the whole background that this thing is happening on, the whole wider universe, is all stretching as the universe expands. And um, it's also accelerating as dark energy um, pushes the universe out even further. And we can look at the effect of that acceleration on the clustering of structure and the pulling of structure okay. together. Okay. And that's the um, that's the. the, the the exciting observable that we get from this kind of that is, this kind of survey that is very interesting because it seems like at the moment we know almost nothing about dark energy and maybe if you found it was clustering that would be really interesting because i always think of it as in my head as being like the cosmological constant which means it's everywhere and it's the same everywhere exactly so that that's certainly our baseline theory our expectation is that we we are expecting that the dark energy will be the same everywhere, a constant, like you say, a cosmological constant. But we don't really know that for certain. And it, there are certainly good constraints on how much this stuff can vary. We know it can't vary much. Um, otherwise, we'd, we'd sort of have seen that kind of effect before. But we also 
there's, there's various theories where dark energy is in fact not just a constant everywhere, but a field, so a, a varying field across the universe, like ripples on water. And so you can have areas of high high waves where you have lots of dark energy and areas, you know, a trough where there's, there's less dark energy. Yeah. Um, that's entirely possible. We don't know it for certain, and there's, there's a Nobel Prize in it for somebody, uh, <laughs> not for me, sadly, but there's a Nobel Prize in it for somebody if it turns out that dark energy does actually vary and does actually um, change with position and time, uh, just because that's a really surprising theory. I mean, dark energy is surprising enough as it is. It's yes. weird enough, just the vanilla kind. But if it turns out it's also clustering and fluctuating across the universe, that's a real challenge for, for theoretical physics to understand why on earth that could be and what kind of theories could go into that. So that would that would as well as being an amazing discovery, open up a whole new world of sort of discoveries that we'd have to have to do further research on yeah so it's um yeah fingers crossed yes although even if it did turn out to be smooth you'd still have you'd still have information about the dark matter exactly yeah so we we don't even know the properties of dark matter which is only the second weirdest thing in the universe (laughs) um so uh, we do want to understand things like how does dark energy interact with itself how does it cluster and those kind of questions dark matter being the, the the backbone of the universe means that um it's a really important question about how it affects itself and how it interacts with um, ordinary matter. Um, so yeah, there's a, there's a, there's big questions, even if dark energy turns out to be the sort of plain thing that we're all ex- expecting it to be. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that's very exciting. And thank you very much. And perhaps um, now that you've joined the department, the listeners will be hearing more of you on the job cast I as well. certainly hope so. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for that, Mark. And now for our main interview, we have Libby talking to brother Guy, Consul Manio, about meteorites. Joining me on the Jogcast today is Brother Guy from the Vatican Observatory. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast again. It's great to be back. And now you work on meteorites and you have been doing some very interesting experiments about these things. Can you tell us a bit more about your research? Well, when I arrived at the observatory about 20 years ago, I found they had a wonderful collection, a collector's collection of meteorites, more than a thousand samples, but not a whole lot of equipment to work on them. So I devised a series of experiments that can do non-destructive measurements of their physical properties, density, porosity, heat capacity, and this kind of survey work, which takes 15 or 20 years really to come to fruition, is the kind of thing you could never do if you were depending on a three-year grant or hoping to get tenure. But it's exactly ideally suited for someone like myself whose only job is do good science and let people know about it. Among the things we did, for example, was to measure the density in a new way. What's density? It's the mass divided by the volume. Mass is easy. You put it on a scale. Volume is tricky because you can't dump it in water, the, the classic Archimedean system. Water is going to contaminate the meteorite. But we use glass beads. I got the idea, actually, from watching sugar go into my cappuccino during a sugar break. Working in Italy is wonderful. We use these glass beads in a container of known volume, and it's very quick. You, know, you, you fill the container with beads, you weigh it, you know the density. You put the rock in, fill the rest with beads, weigh it again. The difference in the weights gives you the density of the rock. With this system, we've been able to survey more than a 1,000 meteorites of every type. We've come up with trends that go with uh, iron content, whether or not they've been weathered, what part of the solar system they come from, And we've even been able to use these numbers to work out how fluffy the asteroids are, how much of a rubble pile an asteroid is. When you know from their spectra what kind of meteorite came from there, and you know the density of the meteorite, the density of the asteroid, you compare the two, you can see that most asteroids turn out to be piles of rubble. What started out as a simple measurement 
mostly because I didn't know what else to do, has turned out to be a really fundamental way of getting at how these meteorites are put together. And this meteorite collection you have, has that been collected over a very long period of time by the Vatican Observatory? You would think, but in reality, no. It was a collection from a French nobleman, the Marquis de Moir, in the city of Troyes, and I can't pronounce either of those French words properly, but he was a private collector and thought that the Vatican should have a natural history museum. So he wanted to give some samples in around 1905. There wasn't any room in those days. But by the 1930s, after he had died, the observatory had moved to Castel Gandolfo, the papal summer home. And so his widow donated his entire collection to us. Now, from the 1930s, there really were only a few people working in meteorites until I showed up. When I arrived in 1993, my first task was to organize the collection. Since then, I've not only been involved in doing these measurements myself, but also loaning out samples to other people. Meteorites are very uh, valuable, and most meteorite collections have a keeper, and the job title is very appropriate. They very rarely let pieces out. But I'm my own curator, so I'm happy to loan the pieces to myself to try out these different experiments. Also, the fact that it was a private collector's collection means that we don't know how carefully kept it was for the first 50 or 100 years, and that means I'm not as worried about contaminating these samples as I might be, say, at the samples of the Natural History Museum or the samples at the Smithsonian. You mentioned earlier about weathering. So how can you tell the difference between a meteor that's been weathered on Earth compared to one that's been quite pristine and has just recently been fallen from the sky? Actually, it's phenomenally easy. Most meteorites, when they're fresh, are a gray color, and they have tiny bits of metallic iron, usually just under a millimeter across, scattered through them. This stuff rusts as soon as it comes in contact with the Earth's air and water, and when it rusts, it turns the rock brown. Eventually, the rusting is so complete that the rock breaks apart and turns into dust. So if a meteorite has fallen into a humid area like Britain, it's rare that it will last more than 10 or 20 or 30 years before it is weathered into dust. On the other hand, if it lands in a dry desert, like the Sahara or the Atacama or Antarctica, it can last for thousands of years intact. Even there, though, it will be partially weathered. And that changes the physical properties, it changes the chemical properties. So one of the things we're interested in is actually quantifying the amount of weathering and how it changes each of these physical properties that we measure. And you said a lot of these meteors are fluffy. What causes the fluffiness compared to some denser, the denser materials that you're saying? Ah, now, a bit of terminology. You said meteor. I think you meant oh, meteor, meteorite. But it's not the meteorites that are fluffy. Most meteorites are, in fact, not fluffy. They're surprisingly dense surprisingly well compacted, much more than you might have expected. Meteorites were formed in the gas and dust of the solar nebula four and a half billion years ago. But the meteorites we have today are not balls of dust, like you might find under your bed. They're solid rocks. And one of the great mysteries is what formed them into rocks. Yet, when we go back to the asteroids that they come from, those asteroids are 50% empty space the kind of porosity you would expect for a pile of sand. Whether the asteroids are piles of sand, piles of pebbles, piles of rocks, piles of boulders the size of the Millennium Falcon, we don't know yet. 
you know, you know, the surface is dusty, but who knows what's going on in the interior of these things. And how do you compare the meteorites from what asteroids they came from initially? How do you know? The best way we can do it so far is the spectra. And in particular, the near-infrared, there are certain bands that are characteristic of olivine and pyroxene, and most meteorites can be roughly classified by the amount of iron in their olivine and pyroxene. Another characteristic, though, is the amount of light reflected from the asteroid, the albedo. Obviously, the meteorites that are known as carbonaceous chondrites tend to be dark, although in many cases it has nothing to do with carbon content. They do tend to be dark. And so meteorites that come that are themselves dark that come from asteroids that are known to only reflect 5 to 10% of the light that hits it, you might make a connection there. On the other hand, in recent years, we've begun to get a lot of good video coverage of a falling bolide, the one in Russia being the most famous example recently. You can use these videos to trace the orbit back to the asteroid belt. So we know they come from the asteroid belt, but even better, you can tell whether they're from the inner belt or the outer belt. And we try to do that kind of correlation to see if, in fact, the stony meteorites tend to come from the inner belt, the more carbonaceous meteorites from the outer belt. And have you got your hands on any of the Russian meteorite sample yet? That one, no. The Russians are pretty tight holding those. I do have a piece of the meteorite that fell at Sutter's Mill a year ago, April. And that's very exciting because it's a carbonaceous chondrite with quite unusual physical properties. Even though it's relatively rich in carbon and water, it's also very, very hard. And that's a surprise. There was a Martian shergatite meteorite called Tissant that fell in Morocco two years ago. And I've been able to get a piece of that. Most of the modern meteorites I have now are either gifts from people who have discovered them, and they like the Vatican, which is nice, so I get a piece of them, or they're pieces that we've traded for. Because I've got a wonderful collection of 19th century pieces that most collectors don't have, I can trade an extra piece of a 19th century meteorite for some 21st century meteorite. It must be very good to be your own curator of your collection for science. It's very, very handy. So one of the things you're talking about is how how do the meteorites actually form from their gas and dust compared to the solid materials that you've been measuring? Can you enlighten us, or is this a big open question that we don't know any answers to yet? Frankly, it's an open question. We don't know any answers. We know some of the things that probably don't work. You know, Sandstones on Earth are turned into stone because of heat and water and high pressures. But we know the meteorites have not experienced long periods of extreme heat. The asteroids themselves are too small to provide a static pressure, and most of these meteorites have not seen running water. A few have, but most of them haven't. So there has to be some other source that has squeezed the dust together. Your typical meteorite, your typical chondrite, has got these tiny balls of maybe a millimeter across of molten and then crystallized rock called chondrules that probably happen in space, but there are more theories than there are theorists as to how and where. And these are gathered together with a lot of very fine submicron dust of essentially the same composition, all squeezed together very tight. When you look at these things under a microscope or in an electron microscope, you can see that they're not fluffy, that there's not gaps, that really most of the porosity that we measured are cracks formed by shock impact long after the meteorite's been formed into a rock. So whatever did it, 
our studies have shown it was pretty convincingly complete in the early solar system and it's pretty uniform regardless of the amount of shock or the amount of heating that the meteorite experienced later on in its career. So exactly how that was, where that was, we're not sure yet. My best guess, very low velocity impacts while the planets were first being formed. But even that doesn't explain everything we see. So that's a very big open question for future research. Absolutely. I'm hoping somebody will come along and give me the answer because I sure don't know it. Um, you also mentioned the stuff that you've been measuring. You've been measuring the, um, the mass and the volume to get the density. And then you're also saying that you're measuring the magnetic field. But you're doing this in a way without destroying the inherent right. magnetic field of the meteor. Could you tell us about this, please? Yes, there's, there's two things you could do magnetic fields for. One is to try to find the magnetic field in the early solar system. And to do this, you measure remnant magnetism. It's very, very difficult to do. Lots of people have tried it. Most people wind up doing it wrong because there are so many external ways that a meteorite could pick up a magnetic field. Um, there are a lot of provocative ideas recently in the literature that suggest maybe the carbonaceous meteorites came from a body with an inherent magnetic field. I think the jury's still out on that. What we're doing, though, is completely different. We're using our own magnetic fields to measure the physical nature of the rock, including the nature of where the iron is. In this case, we take a magnetic field in our detector that's weaker than the Earth's field, so we're not contaminating the meteorite with it, passing it through the rock, seeing how much the rock pulls on the magnetic field, how susceptible is the rock to the magnetic field. It's called magnetic susceptibility. And it turns out this can be correlated with the iron content in the meteorite, which in turn is one of the ways we classify the different sorts of meteorites. And as a result, this is a, a technique first worked out by Pierre Rochette in uh, France, oh, about 15 years ago. And now we're pushing that everybody should do this for their collection. Because you can quickly go through an entire collection, it takes about a minute and a half to measure each rock, see if the number that you're getting for the susceptibility matches what the number you ought to get for a meteorite of this type, and see if the meteorites are classified correctly. To the naked eye, it's hard to tell the difference between an H and an L and an LL ordinary chondrite, and yet they're very different. They probably had different parent bodies. They may have had different uh, origins. And it's nice to have this set up so that, you know, when you're measuring a piece from this rock, it really is what you think it is. We found that in some collections, up to 15% of the samples have been misclassified. It happens, especially if there's not a curator taking care of them year to year. If a collection's been sort of left fallow for 20 years, things will happen to it. And this is a fast way of just clearing up your collection and making sure that things are what you think they are. That's really cool, and that you found and reclassified all these different meteors, so you can actually do the right kind of science and work out where they come from. You know that uh, movie a few years ago, Night in the Museum, about the, the creatures that get up and move? I swear, the meteorites get up and move in the middle of the night. That's <laughs> the only way to explain what I see. And you've also been measuring the conductivity of these meteorites. What does this tell us about the, the properties? Well, I first got involved in this because oh, 40 years ago, I was doing computer models to see whether or not the icy moons of Jupiter could melt, thanks to radioactive elements in the rocky portions. Turns out my models are all wrong. I underestimated the heat production because I didn't know about tidal heating. I underestimated the rate at which heat escapes. And yet we still had the idea of oceans under an ice cap of Europa, this 
bizarre idea. My my advisor and myself published this years before the Voyager spacecraft even got there. And yet I was always suspicious of the models because I didn't know really the heat capacity and the thermal conductivity of the rocky portions of these icy moons. I had to look up literature for pure minerals. Now with my own collection, I have a chance to make these measurements. What we found with the measurements we've done so far in conductivity is that it doesn't really matter that much what the meteorite is made of, whether it's a carbonaceous chondrite or an ordinary chondrite. The conductivity, the rate at which heat flows from one side to the other, is controlled by its porosity. Whether or not the phonons have to jump gaps or go around holes in the meteorite, you can correlate the porosity of the meteorite and what we measure for conductivity. The heat capacity is a measure of how much energy it takes to raise or lower the temperature a degree. That is a measure of what the meteorite's made out of. That also is a strong function of the temperature. The colder it gets, the less the heat capacity is, almost linearly when you're talking about the temperature range of the asteroid belt, you know, from 100 to 300 Kelvin. To come up with an average value of this, we've got a new, non-destructive, quick and fun way of doing it. We have a doer that we fill with liquid nitrogen, allow the nitrogen to boil away very slowly, drop in the meteorite. You can see the weight jump up from the weight of the meteorite, and then it boils like mad <laughs> until it comes down to liquid nitrogen temperature. Then you look at the, the weight, and you can see how much extra nitrogen got boiled away due to the heat in the meteorite. There's a number of corrections you have to do that we've figured out how to do, but after you do these corrections, you can come up with a very reliable, pretty robust value for the average heat capacity of this rock. And we hope with enough data like this compared to uh, literature data on how it changes with temperature, we might even be able to extrapolate the heat capacity at higher and lower temperatures from this average value. We've just started doing it. We think this is going to be a new way of characterizing the entire rock, not just a tiny piece in terms of its chemistry, a way of maybe classifying different iron meteorites because we're seeing a big difference in the nickel content. And let's face it, it's always fun to play with liquid nitrogen in the lab. Oh, definitely. So this is going to be applied to all, the whole collection of thousands of samples. This is my, my plan. This is what's going to keep me busy for the next couple of years, and I'm looking forward to it. On that note, I wish you well playing with all the liquid nitrogen and your, your meteorites. It's fantastic to know that you're holding a piece that was in outer space for four billion years. I've never gotten over the thrill of being able to say that. <laughs> That's very cool. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for that, Libby. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other things we can't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. So over the last few days, the sun has been pretty active. Um, so between the evening of the 12th and the morning of the 14th, there have been three significant solar flares and coronal mass ejections where solar matter is expelled into space. And these have been what's known as X-class flares, which is the highest class of solar flare that there can be. And they varied between an X 1.7 and an X 3.2, where an X 3 series is three times more powerful than an X 1. And these have sort of happened in quick succession, kind of because we're approaching solar maximum. Um, so more and more solar activity is expected. These solar flares haven't been directed at Earth 
um, the coronal mass ejections haven't been directed at Earth. What if they were directed at Earth? Um, there can be some issues with satellites, um, like GPS satellites can get damaged if it's a big one. But these ones aren't the biggest flares that have happened in the solar cycle. The biggest one was actually in August in 2011, and that was an X6.9 um, that happened in this series. But the reason it's in the news is just because there's been so many in such a quick succession. Three all in a couple of days. Three in 24 hours. 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So this is coming towards solar maximum now. Right? Yeah. So at solar maximum, the sun is generally at its most active in the solar cycle. And that's an 11-year cycle? Yeah, an 11-year cycle. Okay. Also in this cycle, there have been 14 X-class flares, excluding these three, since the first one occurred this solar cycle, which was in February 2011. So that's... Our sun's a fairly active thing. Are we safe? Yeah. I mean... Yeah, we're safe. The harmful radiation from a flare actually can't pass through the Earth's atmosphere, so totally safe on the ground, even if it was directed at Earth. Um... But if uh, coronal mass ejections get aimed at Earth, it can disturb the atmosphere where GPS and communications signals travel through. So that's the main problem that we get from the solar flares. So all this radiation and matter is just going off to somewhere else in the solar system, is it? Yeah, but there is a little bit of an issue for a couple of these space-based telescopes. Um, so Stereo B, which is one of the, the pair that is, is looking at the surface of the Sun, and um, Spitzer as well. They may get, as NASA describes it, a glancing blow from the um, CMEs, the coronal mass ejections. Um, so the operators of those can actually put them into a safe mode so that they don't get damaged by by the, the solar flares and CMEs. I guess if you're a solar observing telescope, then it's an occupational hazard being in the way of solar flares. Probably, yeah. And what would happen to those telescopes if they weren't switched off? Well, with things that are in our atmosphere like satellites and stuff they can the radio signals to and from them can get disrupted um yeah it can just affect their electronic systems in a bad way so it's all charged particles right it's kind of flying past them pretty fast the one from the most recent cme um left the sun at approximately 1400 miles per second which is really really fast (laughs) (laughs) so yeah they the, the particles and stuff do travel really, really quickly away from the sun. Cool. Yep. Well, I want to talk about exoplanets, which sometimes other presenters don't like me talking about because they get bored of exoplanets. Um, But this one isn't so much about the planet, because it's not an Earth-like one, Um, but it's more about the technique used to discover it, which has never found a planet before, and so it's a novel technique. What's different about this technique? It's a bit more complicated than the usual, so there's a couple of techniques usually used to find planets around other stars. One is sometimes referred to as Doppler wobble. That Mm. may not be the scientific term, but it's the most descriptive, where the star is being moved around by the planet as it orbits. And you look at the spectral lines, the very fine frequencies coming out of the star, and you detect that it's wobbling. And then the second common method is called the transit method where you find a planet that's actually passing in front of the star from your line of sight and it blocks a tiny bit of the star's light out but that obviously doesn't happen from our point of view for every planet they have to be at the right inclination yeah. in comparison to our line of sight and this new technique is a little bit different in that it brings together three different methods it's still using data from the spacecraft called kepler which is normally using the transit method 
but instead they're looking for three separate effects. And one of them is that when the star wobbles towards us, there's a beaming effect which makes it a bit brighter. But it's quite a weak effect. Um, so how does a beaming effect happen? What is beaming? Well, you've got, if you imagine it coming towards us, the kind of photons of light piling up a little bit, um, which will brighten it a little bit. But you've also got a relativistic effect. So Einstein's theory of relativity predicts this sort of beaming. So that's the first thing is it gets brighter. The second thing is that the planet, if you imagine it's pretty close to the star for this method to work, has a tidal effect on the star, which flattens it out a bit. Okay. So it actually pulls the near side more than the far side, and that stretches it out a bit, and they actually pick this up as well as a brightness effect. How do they pick it up? The way it's described is if it's kind of like a rugby ball, when it's stretched out and you're looking at it kind of side-on, you actually see more surface and it appears brighter. Okay, so it appears brighter in, in some situations and dimmer in others. Yeah. Okay. So you've got these two separate effects. Then a third one, apparently, which is a bit uh, weaker than the others, is that some starlight is reflected from the planet's surface, and we can pick that up as well. Kind of like we get with the moon. Yeah, like the moon. So you've got these three effects, and because they all happen periodically, according to the period of the planet, you can sort of stack them all up, and you can make them greater than they would be individually. And they've all added up to the detection of a planet called Kepler-76b, which is described as a hot Jupiter which means it's very big and it's very close to its star. It orbits the star every one and a half days. It's pretty fast. <laughs> that is fast, one and a half days. And it is twice as massive or as heavy as Jupiter. So it's not somewhere you're going to go and live, I don't nope. think. It's going to be very, very <laughs> It's a 1.5-day uh, year. A 1.5-day year, yeah. And I dare say it's going to be uncomfortably hot, to say the least. But if you do wish to go there, it is a mere 2,000 light years away. Easy distance. <laughs> <laughs> so the scientists that developed this method or this algorithm apparently did so, first of all, about 10 years ago, or at least they began developing it 10 years ago. It's certainly not not as easy to explain as something like the Doppler wobble, um, but that planet has since been confirmed by another telescope using the Doppler wobble method. Cool. So it's definitely there. There's no potential artefacts been double-checked. Yeah. Cool. But most importantly of all, this method, because it combines three effects, referred to as beaming, ellipsoidal, and reflection modulation, can be given the acronym BEER. Awesome. So <laughs> all over the headlines it says, Planet Discovered Using Einstein and BEER. That's an excellent, uh, <laughs> that's an excellent acronym. <laughs> and now our last one, a little bit closer to home, the International Space Station orbiting our own planet Earth has been in the news quite a lot in the last week or so. What's it been in the news for? It's been in the news for some good things and some bad things. The bad news was there was a leak of ammonia coolant from the space station. Sounds pretty serious. Does sound a bit serious, and I think it potentially was quite serious, but it wasn't so quick that it put the crew in danger. However, they did have to go out and fix it by doing a spacewalk and going outside and I can only assume gaffer taping it back together. Probably something a little bit more technical <laughs> than a bit of gaffer tape yeah. on the ISS. But... Okay, slightly. But there's some great photos of astronauts floating around out there harnessed onto the ISS, fixing the leak. Must be pretty awesome to do a spacewalk. I think, it, I don't know if it's scary. I mean, I don't really like heights. Now, obviously, you're not feeling the effects of gravity, but still, you're looking down on the Earth from what appears to be a great height, and I wonder if it gives them the collie wobbles. It would do with me. 
I don't know. I think I'd probably be a little bit terrified about losing my grip and having ropes break and whatnot and going floating off into space. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, they just get a giant robot arm to reach out and grab you back. Maybe. That'd be nice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. There's obviously no sense of up and down, so perhaps heights mean mean nothing up there. Mm. Anyway, it would be cool because actually going out in your space suit and looking down on the Earth... That'd be pretty awesome. Um, and the other reason the ISS has been in the news is because of Commander Chris Hadfield, who's just increased steadily and now quite suddenly in fame as he's been tweeting and sending videos. I from have the ISS. seen some of these videos. In fact, we've mentioned um, some of his videos on a previous episode with him cooking in space. Yeah, we mentioned and cutting his nails. Yeah, showing water floating around and drinking the water and showing how he behaves in zero gravity. There's some pretty awesome YouTube videos, actually. Yeah. And then the best of all is he did a cover of Space Oddity by David Bowie. This is also an excellent <laughs> video. It's bizarre, <laughs> and he can really sing, yep. as well as being the commander of the space station. And generally being very entertaining, he can also sing and play the guitar in space, <laughs> all while sporting that amazing moustache, which I would like to see the video of him clipping, because I really want to know how you trim a moustache in space. Probably with a little vacuum cleaner and some scissors. <laughs> <laughs> But now, Commander Chris Hadfield and two other astronauts, one American, one Russian, have actually come back from the ISS, and they've landed safely back on Earth, and they're now readjusting to Earth's gravity, which must be a little bit of a pain, I guess. Yeah. It'd probably take them a while to get back to normal. Well, they do have um, equipment up there, like exercise equipment, um, specially designed to try and keep their muscle mass and bone density up. Um, but I mean, every, every day, every week that they spend up there in space, it does cause an effect on their muscles and and bones. And so it can be quite a long recovery, I believe. Well, we hope to see Chris Hadfield playing the guitar in 1G again soon. That would be excellent. (laughs) (laughs) And now answering your astronomical questions, sadly not through the medium of song, here's Dr. Ian MacDonald. Our first question comes from Great Old Mac, who says, Comets reach their maximum outgassing rate in the vicinity of the sun. They will condense on the first cold place they find, the ice deposits of Mercury's poles. Would a mission to do a course into those and investigate the deposits reveal the comet history of the solar system, saving decade-long and vast expense on random trips to the opic Oort cloud? That's an interesting idea, but we don't really have to go to the outer reaches of the solar system to investigate these distant objects. We can wait for them to come to us. The Giotto and Deep Impact probes have both visited comets over the last few years, the Stardust mission has actually brought some comet dust to Earth, and the Rosetta mission is currently en route to land on one next May. We get a much better idea of comets in their existing state by visiting them, rather than just investigating their splattered remains that are strewn across the inner solar system. But back to Mercury. Now, we have discovered in the last few months that water ice does actually exist in the deep craters that are permanently shaded from the sunlight in Mercury's poles. That's come from the Messenger spacecraft, but it's also been found on the poles of the Moon. But where does this ice come from? Well, it probably doesn't come down from a rain of comet tails. The typical comet that passes through the inner solar system is a few tens of billions of tons, and it loses up to a billion tons as it passes the sun each time. Now, a billion tons might sound a lot, that only a small fraction of that is water ice. Most of it is in other volatiles like carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, ammonia, methane, dust particles, etc. And it's so bright because those particles are very reflective, 
they're vaporized and they're spread out over a huge area. It's hard to find accurate values, but estimates suggest that as little as 20 to 40 tons of ice is present in the comet's tail. Now of that, only a tiny, tiny portion is going to hit the poles of Mercury. Most comets don't actually come within the orbit of Mercury, and most that do don't survive. So their evaporated ice is blown out rather than settling on the planet. And Mercury is still only a small dot in space compared to the scale of the inner solar system. Even if water hits the planet, only those molecules lucky enough to fall into a polar crater would survive. And in any case, water ice should be split into hydrogen and oxygen ions by the solar UV radiation long before it settles on the planet. So a gentle rain of comet snow onto Mercury's poles looks relatively unlikely. But that ice we know exists, so it has to come from somewhere. Now there's two main possibilities, and there hasn't really been enough research to tell which one's right. The first is that Mercury started off with that ice, and it seeped out its hot core to the surface. While that's possible, our current understanding of Mercury's history probably makes that less likely. The second possibility is that Mercury captured that ice from somewhere, and the best possible somewhere happens to be comets. But we're not talking about comet tails gently raining snow down onto the planet, but actual comets smashing physically onto the planet. So we could go to Mercury, drill a core into the crater ice and examine its contents. But that might not tell us very much. A lot of the interesting information would be lost in the violence of the impact, such as where the comet came from, how big it was, what its structure was, and so on. Even information like when the impact occurred might be impossible to find out. At the moment, we don't even know if the ice was collected in the last million years or the last four billion years. So for the moment, we're better off just going chasing the comets themselves. Keeping on the small bodies in the solar system theme, Pat O'Grady says... The asteroid belt is often shown as a dense area of asteroids that you would have to carefully navigate your way through. But I've heard that it is, in fact, very sparse. There are asteroids, but none that are that close to each other. Which of any of these is correct? Ah, the Hollywood Bonanza. Our intrepid hero effortlessly pilots his spacecraft through a minefield of tumbling rocks in effort to evade the baddies, who eventually crash onto an asteroid with a massive and physically improbable explosion. But what's the actual asteroid belt look like? Well, first I'll give you a couple of clues. We've sent the Pioneer, Voyager, Galileo, Cassini and New Horizons probes straight through it, and it hasn't done them any harm. Secondly, we can see through it. You don't look out from Earth and see a sparkly ring of asteroids in the night sky, so there can't be that many of them out there. Now, the mass of the asteroid belt is only about 4% of the mass of the Moon, a two-thousandth of the mass of the Earth, and it's stretched out into a belt that's two and a half billion kilometres long. If you could compress the whole lot down to a ring, it would be about a kilometre thick. But the real ring is 180 million kilometres wide and 140 million kilometres deep. 63 million billion cubic kilometres is an awful lot of space. And even though 4% of a lunar mass is not something you want to get hit by, that only works out at about 50 milligrams per cubic metre. So if we assume all asteroids are made of Earth-like rock, and you could magically transport yourself to somewhere in the asteroid belt, there's only about a 1 in 40 million chance that you would end up inside an asteroid. The reality is that most of the asteroid belt, like other parts of space, is quite barren. But that's not to say it's not dangerous. The asteroids out there move at tens of thousands of miles an hour relative to each other. That's many times faster than the speeding bullet, so you can imagine the damage that you get being hit by even a small one. So much for lazy tumbling rocks, it's more like a cosmic shooting gallery. 
So that's the bottom line. Speed kills. And it's the speed of the asteroids rather than the number, which is the main danger to any unprotected body in the solar system. It's also the reason why it's hard to find asteroids dangerous to Earth. The smallest ones are most common. Something the size of a large tower block could easily lay waste to a small country. The asteroid that hit Russia recently was only about 17 metres across, and it's about the biggest thing that won't cause damage to whatever it hits on Earth. So watch the skies. Or give some astronomers a grant to do it for you. Our final question comes from Andrew McKenzie, who asks, If a black hole sucks things into its centre, what does a white hole do? The opposite? Well, what is a white hole? It might be nothing but the ramblings of too many science fiction authors. No one knows if they're real or not, and they don't really form a major part of any scientific theories. But what if? What if they're real? Well, the basic premise of a white hole is that it's the opposite of a black hole. Material falling into a black hole ends up spat out of a white hole. But the problem is that that would go against the force of gravity, so we'd have to find some kind of negative gravity pushing things away from it. Then there's the matter of time dilation. You can never see something cross the event horizon, because the light carrying the information to you has used up all its energy trying to escape the black hole. To an outside observer, matter falling into a black hole appears to slow down as it approaches the event horizon and never quite reaches it. If the inconvenience of the laws of physics weren't to stop us, though, we might theoretically see time inside the black hole run backwards. Thus, matter belched out of the white hole might have gone back in time. It would have to be stripped of all its information, otherwise it would violate the principle of causality. So, ignoring minor difficulties like breaking causality and gravity, if a white hole were to exist, it would spew matter devoid of any information out into the past. Now, there's only one place that we know of matter or energy seemingly being instantaneously born into existence, and that's the Big Bang. So, if you're prepared to put up with a little conjecture here, one of two things could be happening. Matter could just be going around and around in space and time, endlessly cycled through black holes and Big Bangs, or every time matter falls into a black hole, gets spewed out in some other universe's Big Bang. However, that's more science fiction than science fact, so I think we'd better stop there before we escape the bounds of reality entirely. In that case, thank you for answering our questions, Ian. And I'd like to say thank you to Great Old Mac, Pat O'Grady, and Andrew McKenzie for their questions. Thanks for that, Ian and Libby. Now, on to the feedback. And we're a little light on the ground on feedback this month, but thank you for the Ask an Astronomer questions that have been sent in, and also thanks for all the likes and shares on Facebook. And on Twitter, saving the day, Space Marine Dan did make a comment and he said, Yay, new Jodcast. And thank you also on Twitter for all the retweets and the Follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post and the address is on the website. So all that's left to say is thanks to Joe Zuntz and Guy Consolmagno for the interviews. The editors were Christina Smith and Mark Perver. And the producer was Mark Perver. Until next time... Jot on. Bye. Bye.